Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, then you are familiar with our Reviewing the News episodes that I do with Cody Townsend once a month. And you also know that as part of those episodes, we have a segment called Blevins Corner, where Cody and I discuss an article from Jason Blevins, who is the journalist in the ski industry. But today, Jason Blevins makes his return to the Blister podcast. He has been in Crested Butte to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the U.S. Extreme Skiing Championships here in Mount Crested Butte. And it's been great having him here. And actually, Jason and I got to ski yesterday, and he was out with a number of Blister reviewers. And then we were out today skiing around with Wendy Fisher and a heck of a crew. But that's not all, folks. Chris Davenport was also back in Mount Crested Butte to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the U.S. Extremes here. And as you are about to find out, well, Chris ended up joining Jason and me about halfway through this podcast. Chris and Jason have known each other for a very long time, and it ended up just being a really fun and really cool conversation. So, This is a little bit of an episode of reviewing the news, except with Jason Blevins and Chris Davenport. But we also talk a bit about Jason's own background and how he got into journalism. We talk about the work that he's been doing at the Colorado Sun. And then Davenport joins us. And then we do talk a bit about the 30th anniversary of the U.S. Extremes. We talk about the Olympics, which just wrapped up not too long ago. And finally, we make some predictions for next ski season. And Jason has a number of really interesting ones. So I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. And it was great having Jason and Chris right back here in Mount Crested Butte. And so with that, let's get to it. Here we go. All right. Well, I am here with Jason Blevins. Welcome to Blister Headquarters, your first time at Blister HQ. I know. It is impressive. What a arsenal of toys you have in this room it is awesome i get the sense you don't actually think we work around here you're just like this is too many this is too many toys it's too tempting to work i would be sitting here always wanting to go play (laughs) well hey man it's fun having you in town and um we got to get together the other day and, and have dinner and i'm psyched that we could circle back on this too you know as people know we do this monthly reviewing the news episode with Cody Townsend, where we each month do a Blevins Corner. But I don't know, this just feels right. Like, knock knock Cody out, turn Blevins Corner into an entire Blevins episode. I think I think this feels right. Yeah, this will be fun. I look forward to it. <laughs> what are you doing out here? Um, came out to uh, do, do a couple stories and going to hang out with the uh, – it's the 30th anniversary of the Extreme Comps. So, we got all the OGs of Big Mountain Ski and all those pioneers of – you know, extreme type skiing who in the early 90s really set us on the path we're on today. It's going to be fun to kind of chat with them, connect with them, you know, ski with them. Yeah. It's going to be a cool story. Yeah, for sure. And you and I will both be at a dinner tomorrow night for the 30th. And then I think 
well, we might, I bet we end up skiing a bit tomorrow together, but we're definitely skiing Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good. All right. Well, listen, this might not be all current events this episode because I think it would be fun to bounce around on some other topics as well. But um, I think the first thing I wanted to do when we were talking the other night at dinner and I was just asking how things were going at the Colorado Sun, you had some pretty interesting things to say on that front. And so I think I'd like to have you start with tell the story a little bit, like how the Colorado Sun got started in the first place. And maybe if you don't mind, share a few of the things where you thought this is where we're doing things a bit different. And my understanding is you've got some other news outlets wanting to kind of get a closer look at how you guys are making things happen at the sun. Yeah, exactly. We've become a a bit of a model for sort of new journalism. We started three years ago. Uh, There was 10 of us. We were all Denver Post employees and we had grown um, increasingly tired of the ownership of that paper. It's a, it's an evil hedge fund by the name of Alden Capital. And they um, are basically heating their mansions in Florida with the bones of journalism. They collect newspapers and shut them down and they're terrible. And we just couldn't do it anymore. Tried to take control of our own destiny and we launched Colorado Sun. It is a member-driven, journalist-owned local news outlet in Colorado that we cover everything long form kind of you guys do long form reviews we do long form journals um so we try to write in-depth stories that that really kind of matter and things that you know we're just journalists who want to be journalists we started out with 10 and we're at 30 now so we're growing three years old we you know hope to be up to 50 soon and you know the idea is that you know we we can offer local journalism and that's i think we're all in need of better and improved local journalism. And that's our goal. And so what is it that other news outlets, or maybe it's, is it only newspapers that are coming to you guys at the sun and saying, how are you making this work? You know, what are some of the unique details on that? Front? So we're, we're an online, we're a website, but we offer our content free for all print newspapers. So you know, we're in, as many, you know, we can be in 25 newspapers a day across Colorado, just about all of them, um, including the Denver Post, which is surprising. They were not happy with us when we left. We were 10 of their, you know, sort of more veteran reporters and we, we all left. So they were unpleased with that move. But now they run Colorado Sun Copy, which is very cool. And, you know, we're member driven. We have some grants, but we, you know, largely rely on readers to give us five bucks a month you know, 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, whatever they can kind of afford. We'll give you newsletters as you kind of ramp up your your membership. But at, at the same time, we do not have a paywall. So if you go to the website, all our stories are free to read. And we just hope that at some point you recognize the value of what you're reading and, and to support us. Yeah. And that was actually something that I was a bit surprised by. And I was kind of pushing you about that at dinner. Like, really, you're not going to paywall any of the content? And your reply was? No, that's not in our business plan. We do not want to limit the flow of news. You know, news is it's important to our community and people need to know it. And that's the way we're going to go with it. And, we, you know, we came online three, four years ago, right at a time when people kind of recognize that there's a value in news. You know, like, gosh, I pay whatever. Netflix is now 20 bucks a month, you know, and we, we pay all these different things you know, every, every month for our flow of, you know, our magazines or everything. So why not pay for your news? I think people are realizing three, 
four or five years ago that, you know, wow, news is not free, you know, and if, if we want, you know, journalists out there finding stories, writing stories, then I'm going to give them five bucks a month and it's only $5 a month. <laughs> yeah. So I think that has been a very positive development for any of us sort of in the media world, that acknowledgement, right? This has now become more of a common expression, right? If, if the product is free, then you, you are the product, right? And with how Google operates and Facebook operates and the rest, I think that's becoming more familiar. And, you know, one of the things we say at Blister is just like, if you actually appreciate this work, if you appreciate the kind of independent reviews, you got to support the work or it this just goes away. And if we're not providing value, then don't worry about it. But if you're one of the people that's like, I actually really want this source to be around or this resource to be around, I, I agree with you that I think it, it has become more apparent to more people that we better support these different institutions. And I've said this many times, you know, for a while there, journalism was under attack and apparently we were bad guys or something, but you will miss us if we go away. You will miss local journalism if it goes away. You do not want to live in a community where you don't have a newspaper. I promise you. So this is, you know... You can yell at us, call us names, tell us we're not doing the right job. We'll we'll listen and you know adapt and you know write better stories. But you need to support us because you don't want to live in a world where there are no journalists. By the way, I actually think you might have sold the services of the Colorado Sun short, <laughs> unless I just missed it and blacked out here for a second. But part of the thing you get with the subscription is access to a number of newsletters, yes. right? So as you ramp up, um, you know, you're, I think you pay 20 bucks a month, you get, you know, my newsletter, which comes out every Thursday, the outsider. Um, and then, you know, we got John Ingold, Mike Booth doing a new newsletter. We got Tamara doing a newsletter. We have just an incredible, you know, suite of newsletters that I think once you get a taste of that, you, you will be ramping up. They're, they're pretty impressive. And I think it's kind of unbelievable what we're doing, but that's, that's kind of our business model. And we are not a nonprofit. We are a for-profit business, um, but we're a public benefit corporation. So we have the status with the uh, IRS to where we're you know, providing a public benefit. So it's sort of straddling this new line, this new model um, for membership-driven journalism and kind of a new, you know, a new approach to a business model for news. We certainly need one. Yeah. Yeah. I love the newsletters. And when the Colorado Sun was just a new thing and I didn't really frankly know that much about it, that is what got me to subscribe was actually the the quality of the newsletters. So yeah, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. We have a lot of fun with those. Again, Cody and I are dropping your name all the time. And so <laughs> Appreciate that. I figured maybe it would be good to just go over a bit of your background. You like people who know kind of know you as like the reporter in the ski industry, but for a lot of people listening to this, why don't you tell us where you came from and what your relationship is with skiing and, you know, how you got into this world of journalism? I'm a Texas kid, grew up in Texas, and we'd always go on holidays skiing. And as soon as I graduated college in 91, moved to Vail and spent four or five years there, ski bum, skiing, you know, 120 days a year and working all night and 
drinking beers all night and then skiing again all day. I can't believe the energy I had back then. I could do one of those. (laughs) I can either work all day, ski all day, or go drink beers, but I cannot do all three like I used to. I don't know what happened. Um, But yeah, so it started, you know, skiing all the time, kayaking, riding my mountain bike, fell in love with playing in the mountains and uh, got a job at the Denver Post, was at CU Graduate School for Journalism and got an internship. And it was right about time that, I don't know, people were going to the internet. I think it was like 1996 and this internet websites, brand new, paying reporters all this money. So people are leaving the Denver Post. I came as an intern and they're like, I don't know, I'd like to say that I just stuck, snuck around. It's kind of unusual. The first newspaper job I ever had, the first story that was ever published by me that anyone else ever read was in the Denver Post. So I had that job for 22 years. It's like people are like, oh, were you right. an editor of your high school paper? Did you know, did you study journalism in college? I'm like, no, I got an internship and was like, this is a cool job. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing this. Well, what, what got you interested in journalism in the first place? Well, you know, it's just fun to tell stories. And I've always been, you know, fascinated with Colorado. I've kind of built a niche over about 25, 30 years now writing for these different, you know, for Denver Post, now Colorado Sun and different ski magazines and things. I noticed no one was really approaching skiing from like a business standpoint as an industry uh, versus, you know, you'd read a lot about like, this is a great place to go ski and go eat here and that kind of stuff. Um, So I wanted to cover it more from a cultural and industry type standpoint. And really, you know, the great Charlie Myers, he was a, it was a columnist at the Denver Post before me. And he sort of set that path. And I basically just blew that up, decided, you know, we need to cover you know, hard business earnings reports and, you know, publicly held companies. It's major, major industry right now. So I like think it, you know, I try to cover it as an industry, same with tourism and mountain business and mountain culture sort of stories, fun stories, and, you know, just sort of a mix things that, you know, really are, are part of an anchor, this, this, you know, ski mountain culture thing that we are so into up here in Colorado. Yeah. And I think you were, kind of a trendsetter in that regard. You know, when when I started Blister, certainly the interest was putting out much, much, much better consumer sure. product information. This stuff is all really expensive, right? And that's right. what I always come back to. It's really expensive. So can somebody put out really accurate and helpful information just to direct people to the right expensive gear? And, you know, I think... <laughs> We go real hard and take that work really seriously while acknowledging once we're on the mountain, that's just fun. We're just there to have a good time. And I think that sometimes a frustration of mine in the outdoor industry is that because the activity itself is fun, it's sort of been treated as if all the business stuff, well, that's just a good time too. And who really cares? And it's been cool to watch this outdoor industry just mature Mm -hmm. and have different entities coming in and be like, we're going to have a real good time when we're on the mountain or on the trail doing the thing. But off that, we're going hard and taking this stuff real seriously. And I think from a reporting point of view, you were, I don't know if you were the first. I would, I would never say I was, I bet there was somebody ahead of me, but it is important to, um, you know, track the evolution of the entire outdoor industry. It was always just a hobby and things you did when you were done working. That's right. Um, and now it is, you know, unquestionably an economic force, a cultural force, a political force. 
you know, we are capable of changing political policy. We are, <coughs> this industry can really, you know, just move the needle in a lot of ways. And it's a, and it's a heck of an economic engine. You know, we drive, we drive the economy in a lot of ways. So, you know, it's no longer just this, woohoo, it's fun. Right. But on the same time, we got to make sure that this, all this stuff is about fun. Yep. You know, and if you start getting too businessy and too corporate and start following too many, maybe Wall Street models and imposing that on, you know, into an, into an industry that's about having a good time, then I think you can run into some headaches. And I think that's what we have seen, you uh -huh. know, especially this ski season. Um, you know, you can't necessarily take, you know, your MBA approach to, you know, an, uh, a sport and an industry that is truly anchored in having a good time. So it's got, we've got to measure those, balance those two out. It's interesting. I haven't thought about this enough in terms of other industries, but it sure does feel like in a number of conversations I've had and some of them that Cody and I have had, and I'll have you help me think through this here, but there is something I think, you know, when we start with a shared passion for this, these activities. And for me, that's all I care about. Like, you know, sometimes when people are like, is it only experts that read Blister? And I'm like, definitely not. And you should see my inbox. And what I have kind of said from the beginning is you don't, you know, we don't only speak to experts. We're not trying to only speak to beginners. It's enough that you're curious and or passionate about these sports that we love. And I think when you start there, you know, I do want to see more professionalism brought to the outdoor industry, but man, there sure seems to be something that the people that are going to be, I don't know, running stuff at a bigger level, it still does feel important that you do actually love these sports. You're not just coming over from, I don't know, dog food marketing or something like and and if that is still there, I think there tends to be a higher probability that big mistakes maybe won't won't get made. Does that resonate with you, or do you think that's maybe unique to kind of any industry, not just the outdoor industry? No, no, I think it is. It's important to the outdoor industry for sure. You know that level of passion is is key. You're not going to sell stuff if you don't prove that you enjoy doing it you know like you can sell dog food and not use that dog food on your dog and no one would care no one notices it you can't go sell skiing or skis or any of this stuff if you are not proven to passionately enjoy it i mean that's one of the sort of the i don't know metrics of this you know how many days did you ski how often you go outside and play what do you like to do um, you know, that's, it's kind of an important part of the industry. And, you know, if you're not out there having fun, you're missing a big part of it, you know, and sure, you might be able to crunch numbers and do everything right. But I feel like you're, if you don't know how to go out and have a good time in the woods, then you're not really going to communicate very well with people that are going to buy your stuff. And it probably for any business starts to set up certain parameters of like, we will do this for a business model or we won't go there, right? Because people might have a better sense of like, 
first and foremost is we got to preserve kind of the integrity of the sport or like what makes the sport cool in the first part. And so if somebody is like, well, I'm just here and I don't really care about say skiing, but I'm just really good at math and coming up with different business models and revenue streams that when they're not coming from that start point of like, here's why that's a terrible idea, Mm -hmm. right? And we'll backfire or just lead to a kind of worse product or something. Probably that that also might be part of the story where it's just like, yeah, we're, we're not going to, we're going to choose not to make our money in certain ways. I think that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. All right. Well, all that said, I mean, I guess we have been talking about a number of your articles on previous episodes of the Blister podcast, but I want to talk about maybe some predictions for next year. But before we do that, given where we are, it is March 4th. What's really standing out to you for about, you know, this season? Uh, Well, we had these very sporadic but big snowstorms. So we have not been spreading out our traffic at ski resorts in a, you know, consistent, strong manner. We're getting, you know, tsunamis of visitors coming in, and that is really pressuring um, small communities. And we're feeling it more this season. But... I have a sense that when final numbers come out for the season, we're not going to be high. Like, I don't think we're going to set a record for visitation. You would think that we would after, you know, the stories of crowding and issues and epic lift lines and all the stuff that we've been hearing about. But it's I'm not seeing, like, that big traffic through January. Everybody will tell you here at Crested Butte, this was a very quiet January. Like, it pretty much went dark here um, and you know, up on the hill, not a lot of lifts and, or not a lot of lift lines, but then here comes these, you know, big spring break crowds starting right now. And, you know, obviously a very busy and super snowy, um, you know, Christmas, New Year's holiday. So, you know, I think when it all is said and done, we're not going to have big crowds, but we are going to have a resonating message on how we need to better manage these crowds. We're really burying our small, you know, resort communities with people and i don't know if you know the business side of selling as many passes as you can is aligning well with the capabilities of small mountain towns to handle you know just july 4th crowds every saturday and sunday for you know an entire winter here in colorado which towns do you think are getting like having the hardest time of it I think it's Summit County and, you know, they're, they're definitely feeling it. You know, you're, you're seeing the traffic there and everything. Brackenridge is just so popular. Keystone so popular, you know, and there's four, four resorts there, you know, copper is very popular as well. So those are, you know, major resorts drawn well over a million visits a year. And, you know, now we got the new pass, you know, the cheaper pass that this season that came out from Bell resorts, they sold 2.1 million, a you know, passes and advanced lift tickets, you know, we've heard that number over and over. Um, so it, it feels crowded. And then you add in the growing populations of these communities. This is something that I think is lost in these crowding arguments a lot. Um, you know, for example, I live in Eagle. We'll get a 12-inch day on a Tuesday and we'll be parked on the frontage road like it's a Saturday. Those people are not coming from Denver. They're coming from our county. Eagle County is 60,000 people. 
you, you remember all those folks, you know, that are talking about, oh, it never used to be that crowd. And you're like, dude, there were 20,000 people in, you know, Eagle County 15, 20 years ago. You know, so we're growing rapidly. We have more residents. We saw that during the pandemic. More people moved to their second homes. More people moving to these communities. They're living here. So when we start talking about crowds and talking about, oh, it's pass holders and it's front rangers, you need to look really hard because there's a pretty good chance that the person you're yelling about being a crowd is your neighbor. Um, I think these communities are, are growing so quickly and they're feeling it. You know, they're, they're, you're seeing the numbers, just the stress on the local restaurants. It's not just tourist traffic. But when you combine that growing population with those Saturday, Sunday weekend numbers that we always see, then you're starting to feel real pressure, capability pressure. Um, and then it, then it boils down to how do you address that and who's responsible for that and how do you balance between the big ski company that's selling the passes, that's bringing everybody to town on the weekends with the community. The communities need to hand, manage its own growth and, you know, its own affordable housing and its own, you know, there, there's a line there. You know, the Vail Resorts people will tell you like, we're not, we're not 100% responsible for what's happening here. Like we need to share this responsibility and how we handle it and how you balance between those two things is going to really define the industry as we move forward right now and how we sort of manage these crowds in these towns that just, they're not capable of having this level of traffic. They're just not built for it. And so makes you wonder, you know, like, how are we going to do it? Are we going to have parking towers? Are we going to have better transportation, trains, gondolas from city spots that you ride for an hour or whatever? You know, these are all big things, you know, that need to be answered. You know, how many more, you know, winters can we have where Little Cottonwood Canyon in Utah is just backed up for hours or I-70, you know, the whole route into the mountains is just, you know, hours of drives. You will damage the industry. You will damage the resort business if you keep that up. So something needs to be done and how we kind of work around that is it's going to define our future going forward. Pretty interesting time. So it doesn't sound to me like you have your top two or three solutions for dealing with this increase in people when it comes to the the towns themselves what the towns should do i don't i don't know that i've heard you touch yeah. on that yet i've i've heard you make a prediction that i yeah. wanted you to share for for next year but do you want to address like maybe you do have thoughts about well, i i mean a little bit what what we've seen is you know coming out of the recession there was a lot of economic uncertainty and everybody stopped spending on everything you know we didn't see new hotels we did not see literally one of the newest hotels in colorado is the Grand over there in Crested Butte. That's a 15-year-old building. You know, so that's, you know, they just stopped building hotels. So now, traffic's back. There's no place for visitors to stay overnight. You know, it's not hotel capacity. So what happens? We convert homes into hotel lodging. So you got short-term rentals. Suddenly, that's a very valuable way to have a house. You can have a house in a ski town that'll pay all your bills and you won't have to pack it with folks for a year who might tear it up. You get cleaners in there once a week. So the short-term rental things just exploded, you know, arguably because there wasn't another place for all these visitors to stay. So 
these homes are going away. Locals used to live in those homes. Now we got a housing crisis, and it's a significant housing crisis. And, you know, very few communities have been aggressively building affordable housing. Steamboat's doing a great job of it. And, you know, they're arguably ahead of everybody else. But, you know, all these communities are like, wow, we need employee housing yesterday. You know, and we need the full gamut of it. We need the houses for the dentists and lawyers, and we need the houses for the lifties. So, you know, and you're just finding, you know, the proposals, somebody will come up and say, oh, we want to build a, you know, uh, a giant apartment complex, and it'll be destroyed because of 0.4 parking lot parking spot issues, you know, like Crescent Butte killed a very good project over there. Um, Vail's done it. All these communities tend to kill beautiful, high density employee housing projects, you know, and arguably, you know, maybe look at it. It was protecting the culture, protecting the heritage of the Valley. But at the same time, right now you need those houses and you wish you'd built them. So, I think, you know, communities are going to be just aggressively building short-term housing. What that looks like, you know, we need density. Density is a bad word in mountain towns. Nobody wants to see that. You're going to have to have density. It's the only way you're going to fit people. So, I don't know. I'd like to see, you know, highways lined with canyons of hotels and condos and apartment complexes. It's a highway. So, why not just put that density right on the highway and, I don't know, start given places for people to live in these towns that have become, you know, they've been completely priced out of. So building affordable housing is one, you know, that's, it's gotta, it's gotta happen. It's gotta happen yesterday. And we did a multi-part series on the blister podcast called mountain town economics. And yeah, it was really I would good. encourage anybody who hasn't checked that out yet to go listen to that. Yeah, really um, good. thank you. Yeah. Um, and I think it would be, good as we are kind of, you know, we've maybe many of us have just been skiing a bunch and, you know, we just hosted a blister summit and stuff, but probably good to revisit some of those conversations as we are, you know, as ski season is winding down a bit and like, let's just pick it back up and think through and, you know, figure out who we're voting for and, you know, different representatives running and what are their policies and the rest on some of this, because we've got to keep making positive steps on this. And, you know, you've got to start accommodating growth. Like you can't say growth isn't going to happen. We don't like growth. You need to prepare for it and build it with high density apartment complexes. Like that's what every community wishes they had a high density apartment complex. And you can do that. You can protect your culture. I think what we found out in this, you know, in the past couple of years is that the culture of a place has more to do with your workforce than it does with anything else. And if you lose them, you're, you're putting your neck in a noose. So it's time to, you know, find ways to keep those locals in your communities and quit driving them out. What will happen is that you'll drive them out and the next cool town will be Ridgeway, you know, because they can't, nobody can live in Telluride anymore. Telluride would be a rich enclave of empty homes and, no businesses and everybody will want to go down to Ridgeway to eat at the cool restaurants that are run by the cool locals and all the cool shops and all this stuff. So you're going to kill your ski towns if you don't find a way to keep your locals in town. And somebody else is going to step up, step up and fill that role of cool town. All right. I think this brings us to 
the prediction of yours that you shared with me the other day for next season. Yeah. Um, now, is this a prediction or yeah, is this just, no, is this more of a like, this is what should happen or is this a, this is what will happen? Well, we've start, started to see it. I mean, the prediction is basically about reservations. We saw that during the pandemic. We saw skiers try to control traffic with a reservation system. Vail Resorts built an incredible reservation system. Uh, absolutely just an amazing technology tr from the ground up in a matter of months. One of the most amazing technological feats in the history of the resort industry, if not the most. And then they shelved it. And it hasn't been used at all, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Um, but one thing that I keep, you know, you see this over and over. When people complain about traffic and crowds in skiers, they are often talking about cars. Um, they don't, we don't have enough places to put cars. And everybody, especially during the pandemic, they drove by themselves or whatever. And we love our cars in this country. We've got to haul all our stuff. Um, so finding a way to control car traffic and I think we'll see some sort of reservation system for parking. Um, I think it's just got to happen. Like, it's crazy in Vail. They were saying the other weekend, people in Denver driving up to Vail and Avon and then driving back to Denver because there was not a single parking spot in all of those, that end of the valley. So we need to find a way to control cars, limit cars. No one should have to drive all the way up, turn around, drive home because they can't find a place to park their car. Should have a place to park your car and know that you can park your car. And if you know you, if you can't, then you're probably not coming. So I think controlling car traffic, Telluride's doing a really good job of that. Some public transportation type options, um, you know, telling visitors like you don't need a car. You, you actually don't want a car. And then punishing them when they come with a car, you know, and be like, oh, here's your hotel room. By the way, you know, the parking spot is half the cost of the room on top of the room or something like that. You know, just try to, discourage that just you know encourage people to ride together you know four four people in a car you get free parking sort of things like i think we'll see a focus on those kinds of um you know controlling car traffic and then in the early season when there's limited terrain you know we haven't gone like that big old banger storm that opens 100 percent you know wall to wall um by you know thanksgiving so when we have limited train they're gonna have to control traffic and I predict we'll see those reservation systems come back for, you know, those big, busy weekends for the resorts that are close to cities. And that's where, you know, I live in the Eagle Valley. We're going to have to be back at that. So, you know, I think that's that's one of the ways we're going to control it is some early season reservation systems, some sort of ways to control cars through reservations. And then we're going to be spending more on our season passes. I think one of the lessons that Vail learned last year is, you can sell a lot of passes when you cut the price by 20%, but maybe that's not the best plan. I think we need to find a better balance between the value of the pass and the price of the pass. And we need to have, you know, when they're more expensive, maybe fewer people buy them, maybe people buy fewer days and want to buy those unlimited passes. And then they also incentivize your employees who come, you know, do jobs because they get a free pass. When you get a free pass, it's only $600, less incentive to take that resort job. If you get a pass, it's $1,500, you know, it's, it's, it's just a better deal. So I think we'll see, you know, sort of a return to, you know, maybe typical pricing. I bet we're going to see, well, the icon, just early season icon went up by what, 80 bucks. So, 
you know, it's not that much, but we're just going to slowly incrementally return to that steady price increase in those passes to kind of balance the crowds, control the crowds with pricing reservations and kind of pushing to off peak days. You know, maybe we'll see a pass. that's like Monday through Friday, Epic pass sort of thing, something like that. You know, there, I think we'll start seeing a lot more fine print in those past deals. No more of this, like unlimited, you know, limited, then that's it. You know, some blackout days, I think we're going to have, you know, tiers of passes and, and tons of fine print on the past things. And, you know, we'll have to, you know, really dive into these past products and make sure that they fit, you know, each of our demands. Let me ask you, I like to, you know, get in a dumb question as often as I can. Here's maybe, maybe my dumb question for this episode. We sure all seem comfortable with the notion of a reservation system when it comes to restaurants. Sure. Why does it seem like we don't like the idea of a reservation system at ski areas? Well, most ski areas are on land we own. That's our land, you know, it's a forest service and we own that land. And, you know, we pay for speedy lifts to haul us up so we can better access our public lands. Um, and, you know, so maybe that's a little bit with it. You know, the fact it's never been done, you know, other than last year, it was the first ever time we had to make reservations to go skiing. That's, but, you know, I think that the experience on the mountain needs to be protected a little better and the way to protect it, you know, because if, if you come up and you wait in line no. and you're, you know, and it, it's just like traffic and, you know, the the actual part of skiing is so diminished, then you're not going to buy the pass again. And like you start to hurt your business plan. So, I mean, granted, I didn't love having to take the steps to do reservations last year. I love that freedom to just Slap sure. my laptop shut when I was ready to run out the door and go get on the mountain. But I would rather have a, you know, controlled experience, not overcrowded, not crazy lift lines in the same way that I'd rather put in a reservation at a restaurant than like, sure. go, wait. you know, than yeah. wait for two hours out front. So I, I guess this is to say, I think I'm fine with the idea that areas implement a reservation system. I think most of us would be like, I don't, you know, sure. It's a bit of a hassle. And, you know, if you get shut out in that early season when they only got whatever, a couple hundred acres open in November, you know, but that's not a great experience anyway. So, you know, just, you know, I, I think the reservation system worked really well. I was kind of surprised to see him, you know, not have it return, but I think there's some value in it and we might see it for some of these busy, crazy weekends. I think it's, it, it certainly should be, it's be considered in some of these corner suites in the resort operator offices. Yeah. This is a first in the history of every podcast I've ever done. Oh yeah. Chris Davenport is texting me right now, telling me that he's waiting outside. Should okay. we invite Davin? We always invite Davin. Okay. To, and so like maybe we'll invite him in and then we'll, uh, we'll keep going with this episode and see what, what thoughts he has. All right. Hang on. We're going to go find Dav. 
All right, we got Dav. I got him some Revel Shine wine. Set up a microphone for him in HQ. And what you're going to hear is, uh, well, we're going to come in right in the middle as he's talking to Jason Blevins about the early days of the extreme comps. So here we go. Yeah, I mean, it, it just opened up so many, uh, not doors yet, but like my mind and opportunities and like, wow, this is a thing. And by the way, the next competition um, is in Las Lanias, 90 or whatever. Yeah. Like I came back here in 95, went to Las Lanias, 95, uh, won, qualified for WESC in Valdez, won. And then, you know, it's just like a rocket ship. <laughs> and here we are. And, here we are. <laughs> and, and, and just all the friendships, because we were all young. Everyone was in their early 20s and maybe late teens. I mean, yeah. Seth was probably six or no, 18, yeah. 18. For this you know? first one? For the first, yeah. 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 You know, met Stephen Murray. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, I just think back. I mean, it's, think of all the, yeah. I mean, what you guys seeded right then. Yeah. I mean, look at this room. Like, we we were skiing on skinny skis and just suffering through, you know, hop turns and not really knowing how to do it all. And yeah. you guys came out and said, this is how you ski big mountain shredding. Yeah. I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of us, not that first couple of years, but Shane and I, some others, but then Brant Moles comes on board. Jeremy yeah. Nobis comes on board. Swanee was already there. Everyone came from ski racing. Yeah. With, you know, including Seth. Uh, but with the exception of Kreitler, was more of a freestyle skier. Um, Good Plake, bumper. Plake, yeah. yeah. Uh, but Coombs, yeah. You know, he won here. Reichelm won here. It was awesome. Yeah, awesome I mean, time. It, it, it truly been. one of the most influential events in the history of skiing. Yeah, no question about it. Right here, and, and you, know, you know, they always say if you're not the best, you should be the first. This was the first and the best. Yeah. You know, they uh, nailed yeah. all of it. And actually the yeah. founder of, of the crest, the U S extremes is here. Gina. Yeah. Gina Cross. Huh. And I haven't seen her in 20 years. I haven't huh. seen her in 20 years. She hasn't been here. No, I'm so excited to see her. Yeah. She had the vision. If you can't be the best. You should be the first. And this was the best. 1994. Yeah. The U S extremes were sponsored by American express presented by Volkswagen. They're not screwing around. No big sponsor for yeah. this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> oh, and he had the new, you know, kind of like, you know, John Norton was the one who helped put these surface lifts in, in a Crested Butte, which arguably, has, you know, changed the whole yeah direction for this, this skier. Yep. It did change things here. I would argue that there's probably uh, very few other lifts in North America that were as um, significant. In, uh, uh, for a small lift. I mean, you can talk about like the Revelstoke gondola, yeah. something yeah. big. That's that's a different infrastructure project. Yeah, yeah. But to put in one small lift that opens up so much mind-blowing terrain, um, that lift is packs a big punch. Yep. And we were talking a little bit earlier about the Breck 87 avalanche that I just wrote about and how that played a bit of a role in this. It sort of, it sort of turbocharged this movement to where resorts were like, hey, man, we... We don't need to open up more blue train. We need to open up steep train because mm -hmm. if we don't, these kids are going to keep pushing through our boundaries and keep going off to these crazy steep bulls. We need to give them lift service and we need to mitigate that stuff. You're absolutely right. And it's funny that you mentioned that, Jason, because my wife and I were talking about your article of the Breck avalanche this morning at breakfast. Oh, nice. um, the first photo in your article shows a bunch of patrollers on the scene and our very, very close friend. Corey Bretman is in the far right of that photo, tall Corey. 
uh, was a Breck patroller, moved over to Aspen in 1990. Uh, his kids grew up with our kids, and he was killed in an avalanche in Aspen Mountain oh. uh, 11 years ago uh, in Pandora's. Uh, yeah. Mm, and, uh, I remember that one. Yeah. So we, we, that was just a, a connection that we, uh, when we saw your article and we saw the photo, we were like, oh, huh. man, crazy. I know. And your wife's a patroller. I mean, that was, that incident changed the way we patrol, mm-hmm. changed the way resorts manage boundaries. It led to Aspen Highlands Bowl opening up and it mm-hmm. led to these two chairlifts. You Colorado know, the Avalanche like, Information Center yeah. development. Yeah. That was, that was big. Yeah. One of the, and you, you researched it so well because there were so many, uh, factors and, and so many things that came out of that yeah. that were a benefit or positive for the industry. Yeah. We are still, you know, reaping the, um, lessons that have been learned from that, from that, you know, tragic event. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Hey man, <laughs> we're going to let that part ride. Um, but I guess we'll stop now and just say, uh, welcome back. It's been a whole, I don't know, four or five days since I've seen you here. Yeah. Welcome back. And, uh, this is pretty fun having you link up with me and Jason. You you crashed our podcast. <laughs> well, I thought you guys were actually doing the podcast because the door was closed. So I was sitting outside uh, in the lobby getting some work done. Um, and I'm glad you texted me to come on in because, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, the, you know, the reviewing the news with Cody Townsend pods. And yeah. of course, Blevins plays uh, a big role in that because yeah. he's, uh, you know, covering Ski Town news as, as closely and as eloquently as anyone out there as a journalist. And um, so I always look forward to those segments and now I get to kind of sit in on one and, and I've got my own, uh, you know, thoughts and, and uh, uh, ideas on, on everything that's going on in the yeah, world. Yeah, you do. Mountains <laughs> and, um, yeah. Well, then we the, won't go into ski town politics. We, we just, <laughs> we just, we just kind of did that. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. So you'll have to listen to that part. Okay. Um, we got into that a bit. Jason was making some production predictions for next season. Reservations. Increased costs for passes, more fine print on those passes with the, just an array of offerings. And, you know, I would not be surprised if we start to see like a midweek pass or something like this. Or Yeah. You know, I, I think that you're absolutely spot on. We're in an incredible era of um, not development, but uh, just trying to figure out what the right solution is. Uh, and it's not just one. It's 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 many different things because every resort's different. Um, the consumers that ski and snowboard are are, are different in different regions. And um, I'll drop something on you. What do you think about uh, lift passes being NFTs that are just totally exchangeable, fluctuate in value on a minute by minute basis, and can be? Um, I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe you heard could, it here first. I don't know. Could be dangerous. Like Maybe. I think we could see like the sport become terribly pricey even more so than it is right now probably well first of all i think what's funny is actually you and i were talking about nfts <laughs> like a month or two ago yes we were yeah so you might actually be first on this i i think credit i think you do <laughs> get bad. credit for I, this i can see it i mean i just think it's uh possible so yeah, yeah. i that's not happening it's not happening next season no. i don't think that's happening I'm saying that's not happening in the next five years. Mm, we'll see. Yeah. Did you just see, uh, so Sun Valley and Snow went, Basin. Snow Basin went to Icon. Icon. Yeah. So that's a, that's a significant move. I, I would love to be privy to those conversations, you know, because oh, yeah. how much does a resort get? I'm, I bet, and I have no reason to guess this, but they get about a hundred bucks 
for every punch on an epic pass, you know, for that partnership. Right. Um, that's a guess. And I have no reason to think that that I've never seen anything to prove that. Yeah. But I think that, you know, Icon wants it so bad. Altera wants those two so bad that they're like, we'll give you, you know, yeah. 110 or whatever, oh, sure you know, and it just becomes this loss leader for, for those guys. But one thing that, you know, I'm starting to see the, you know, Altera just came out with an incredible amount of money they're going to invest next year in their resorts, like an incredible amount. And then, you know, Crystal's doing a huge project. All these resorts are kind of rolling out these big skies. See what big skies doing? Like they're, they're, these are not necessarily Vail or Altera owned resorts that are coming out with some very large spending. So the, there's some money coming in. They're, you don't lay out what Big Sky just did without having a yeah. bunch of good seasons. You're absolutely right. I mean, the project that the Kirchners are doing at Big yeah. Sky with a new uh, gondola is you know, uh, leading in the industry. Sure. And I think you, if you want to play in the sandbox with the big boys right now, you need to spend some money and they all realize that. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of exciting to see, uh, never mind the Pandora's expansion on Aspen no. mountain, which is a, a pretty significant one. That's going to start this spring, uh, the cutting of uh, a bunch of new acres and trails and, um, uh, new expansion at steamboat into yeah, Fish Creek with its huge new gondola going yeah. in there. Longest so, gondola in North America. Or something yeah, I like think that? there's a. I think there's an argument between. Um, it might be between Big Sky and Steamboat as to oh, who's yeah. got the longest one. I was up uh, uh, skiing in Steamboat two weeks ago um, with, uh, with with Dave Hunter and Rob, and we were talking about that, and it was uh, it was kind of fun to kind of you know play a little competitive. Right? <laughs> That's and funny. They all want to be the best. One thing that gets lost in this spendathon that we're seeing right now, like arguably, you know, this year is the largest um, lift order year in the history of chairlift. So, yep. you know, resort industry is incredibly healthy. One thing that gets lost in when you talk about that is the fact that Vail Resorts opened up financial markets that is enabling this kind of borrowing and spending. Back in the day, there was one bank in, in, in Colorado, it was Dennis Horcutt's US Bank. And he was the only one that lent to skiing because skiing was crazy. Why would you lend, you know, a ski resort that might have a bad year and only makes money four months a year and doesn't have, you know, so they had very limited access to capital and you typically bought stuff with cash if you wanted to expand. Now these resorts have, you know, the investment world has found comfort and their willingness to work with the ski industry now knowing that, you know, you can have kind of a consistent year round income with these, um, with these season pass sales in the spring and summer and moving around. And that is solely a credit to Vail Resorts and Rob Katz. I know you don't like to give him a lot of credit, but Vail Resorts opened up financial markets that have not, that would not be available to skiing right now. And Stephen Kircher would not be able to borrow and finance what he's doing out there if it was not for how Vail Resorts has changed the financial structure of this industry. I would agree with you 100%, Jason, there. And, uh, you know, as um, people who, yeah, can sometimes be uh, <laughs> known to, to bash on the, the big uh, brother in the, in the room or whatever, it's, it's fine. They, they absolutely did open those things up, and uh, we're all reaping the benefits of it, I think. Sure. Hmm. I hope. Doesn't excuse everything, you know, that they've done since, but that is just a credit to, um, to them. I think that that is one of the most transformative um, aspects of this industry right now is that, you know, resort operators have access to capital that they would never have had, had yeah. it not been for the way they opened that market up.
So to maybe wrap on this point for a sec, Chris, are you in on Jason's prediction that we will see Vale at least move to back to a reservation system for next year? I don't know. I think that they would do their customers a, 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 a solid by not having a reservation system just because we're so used to being able to show up and ski whenever we want to ski and not have to plan like that. But what we're seeing around the Vail Resorts world is uh, a system that probably needs reservations to better manage crowds um, and create a better skiing experience. So I would not be surprised. Jason knows a lot more about what's going on in that sphere than I do. Um, and and I, I guess I should just say nothing really surprises me these days. Yeah. We've seen, <laughs> I mean, gosh, I remember sure. sitting in my hotel room in Portillo, Chile, uh, and with, at my ski camp in August of 20, I don't know what it was, 16. And, and I, I wake up to Mike Douglas going, holy shit. And, uh, Chris Anthony is in there too. And he's like, what? He's like, Vale just bought Whistler. Right. Chris is like, hell yeah, we just bought you. <laughs> um, and I was, that was the most shocking thing yeah. I think I'd ever heard. Yeah. For 17 X EBITDA. Yeah. Like the, it was, <laughs> it was unbelievable. We couldn't even wrap our deal. heads around what that unbelievable meant. Unbelievable deal. One of the world's greatest ski resorts, Whistler Blackcomb just got acquired by Vail. And, um, there was a lot of teasing going on and this and that. And how much has happened since then? Yeah. yeah. The formation of Altera, the expansion, the purchase of all these resorts. I, I just couldn't have imagined it five, six, seven years ago, but here we are now. And so what happens in the future? might be crazy, but it probably won't surprise me. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I, we'll, we'll move off of this in a sec, okay. but we have at certain ski areas in particular, an overcrowding issue. On certain days. On certain yeah. days. Yeah, it's not so day. like, I don't want to go down to the restaurant. Like we're used to this when it comes to restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I was making this point earlier with Jason. So like, I would much rather just know like, yep, I have a table at that restaurant, I don't want to show up there, find out there's an hour and a half wait, especially if we're talking about switch the analogy over back to ski areas and find out it's a mess. There's nowhere to park, yada, yada, yada. So like I, 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 you know, if I'm not saying that reservations is like some ideal way to do things, but I'd rather have somebody mitigating traffic than just make it a free-for-all. I don't see how the free-for-all helps anybody. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. And if you look to uh, golf, you're typically making a tea time. That's right. If you look to um, amusement parks, you know, the Disneys and things, you're, you're typically making a reservation for that day when you want to visit with your family. Um, and, and like theme parks, um, you can pay for upgrades, you know, to different, maybe not skipping lift lines, but somehow having different priorities, uh, same with the airlines. No one shows up at the airport anymore to buy a plane ticket, yeah. right? So it makes a lot of sense what yeah. you're saying. Powder Corp unra unrolled that thing where you can bypass the lift line and get in. Boy, Not without controversy. Everybody got really mad at them, but then that whole thing went away when Vail Resorts became the, the poster child whipping post for the freaking season they they have been taking a beating in the public square and and no one no one talks anymore about it's that it's funny that powder you know powder Court did that but for instance at snowbird you've always been able yeah. to bypass the tram line 
with a what was the special pass called? Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's always been a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or you just hire a ski instructor and you bypass every lift line no matter where you are. Yeah, which is great, and I highly uh, encourage that. Okay, so here's where we are. Blevins is actually predicting reservations for next year on some days. Chris and, and I starting with parking. Chris and I are not necessarily predicting, but I honestly don't have a better idea. Well, yeah. I, I can tell you to Jason's point, yes, it will probably happen on certain days and it will only happen at certain resorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure, the resort that I ski at will not have reservations. No. It doesn't The ones it. closest to the city. Yeah, the ones, that are, the ones that are obviously yeah. dealing with a lot of traffic and a lot of lift lines, that's going to help mitigate uh, – the lines and create a better skiing experience. You're right. And they will be doing a service to their skiers with a reservation system. If they can convey that message and be like, believe me, you want this. So here's a question though. If you have a reservation system, is it something that you need to pay more for or is it actually more affordable? You just have to go through the proper channels. Like how how does that in, 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 uh, either increase or decrease the cost of the scheme. Well, I think Vail Resorts had it perfectly. It was free. You know, was, you just make your reservation. No, I'm not, I'm not saying the reservation will cost more money. I'm saying like um, by limiting the amount of people that are going to ski, are yeah. they going to have to increase the price? He already predicted that too. Okay. I think, well, <laughs> I think it's time. Before you crash well, I think it's time podcast. for us. You know, Vail probably ruse their 20% discount. Mm. I don't think that worked as well as no, they, no. you know, the having quantity over quality is maybe not the best. So I think we'll see a return. I'd be shocked. I'll eat my shoe if they do another discounted pass product. They're going to come back and be a thousand bucks to 1100 bucks. Mm-hmm. Just For like the other pass. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Related question. One of the things that we've been talking about recently, well, meaning like the last year or two is the question of whether we will continue to see a surge in backcountry skiing or whether we're going to see a tapering off. And I actually, and several of our people who were weighing in on this, thought we would see a bit of a tapering off. But given the conversation we're having right now about perhaps moving to a reservation system and some people just not being able to get to certain ski areas, I think I might actually be changing my answer a bit on this. It's so hard to quantify. Um, One thing that can be quantified this year is that we have seen a significant downturn in backcountry gear sales. Um, They are tracking MPD. Their latest stats show you're down 20, 30% for backcountry gear sales off that, you know, 100% increase last year. So it's to be expected. You know, like if there's, once you buy your backcountry kit, you're not going to buy another one the next season. So, you know, it's kind of, we're seeing people settling into a more, rational buying. But in my mind, I think only a 20% decline is pretty significant. That to me says there's still a lot of people coming in saying, you know, I want my AT stuff. I agree with Jason. I think there was such a surge during the beginning of the pandemic with people buying new gear. I mean, obviously we saw it in the, in the bike industry in a big mm-hmm. way. That's Huge. a whole nother conversation. But uh, to only be off 20 to 30% this year shows me that people are still buying backcountry gear at a, at a good pace. And what I'm excited about is to see the uh, opening up of new backcountry specific ski areas um, and, and more backcountry specific guide opportunities um, to just because people I think are, are going uh, trying to figure out, like, how do I get 
into the backcountry, get experience, meet partners, get education, do it safely. Mm-hmm. People ask me that all the time. How do I how do I meet people to go backcountry skiing with? Um, it's it's not it's not there's no easy answer to that. You got to just kind of be out there, and, right? And so this, these these provide great opportunities. So I think we're going to see an increase in that. Yeah, the bluebird's been very successful. Um, I wonder how many you know they sell season pass to bluebird, mm-hmm. and it's a, the the new mountain is awesome, but it's still not a place you want to go ten times. No. Like, I think after I go a couple times, I I think to myself. Uh, okay, I'm ready to go backcountry. Of course, but it's introduced you to yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It's great, right? That's but the that's, financial model on that. If you only have something that's going to appeal for two or three trips, the sustainability of that business model. Well, wait a I second, wonder. Jason. I mean, you've been doing this a while. For people that are truly new to backcountry yeah. skiing. They I mean, might introduce more people. It's a beautiful concept. It, it really is. And it's not just about the introduction. There's there's events that can go on, yeah. right? There's whether it's little competitions. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, my friends at Ski the Whites in New Hampshire. Schemo stuff. Schemo yeah. stuff. Doing events at the um, oh. and and bringing people together in that way. Whether it's a evening skinning event yeah. where everybody just comes out and they have you know, camping at that Bluebird, which yeah. is apparently really popular and that's awesome. Super what a great fun. Way to spend a weekend. Yeah. It's great camping. Way. Yeah. You know what the average the hotel price is in Vail or yeah. right now? <laughs> it's a lot, a lot nicer to go set up your sweet tent. <laughs> hmm. No, I think it's it's playing a critical role. Um, I just wonder if we're going to see a proliferation of them. Okay. I could see one, but like if we had five of those in Colorado, I'd be like, wow, how are those going to work? Yeah, I think there could be one in each region, yeah. which mm-hmm. would be really cool. Yeah. Because they, they serve as like education centers, they serve as social centers, they serve training centers. We training can go get our centers. avalanche, you know, classes there. Absolutely, yep. Great place for guides to go do airy level ones and twos. Um, you know, learning about equipment, places for yeah. people to go test backcountry gear. It's super. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing back to that, you know, backcountry numbers. Um, we're not seeing incidents or accidents like we did last year. You know, we saw last year was, you know, yeah, granted that stuff moves. It's hard to predict. Yeah. That, that's, but, that has to do with uh, mother nature more than mm-hmm. uh, trends in skiing, in my opinion, this year. Sure. It's such a difficult number to pin down. Like you just don't know. You never know how many people go out and had a great time and came home safely. You know, there's a lot of them, but we know all about the people that went out and did not mm-hmm. um, come home. So it, you know, there's a lot of terrible news out there about things that make it look super dangerous and threatening. And it could be very, you know, and that's not necessarily anchored in truth. It's entirely possible to go have a wonderful time yeah. in the snowy backcountry and limit almost all your exposure to avalanche strength. I, I think of it as like the Mount Everest analogy. All you hear about Everest is the bad things that happen. But yeah. yet, yet there's 500 other people that are having great experiences up there. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, it's just difficult to say, like, how is backcountry growing and has it grown? We know anecdotally for sure it's grown. Like, there's way more people going into the backcountry than there were five, 10 years ago. I'm just sitting here in the blister (laughs) headquarters looking around, and there's a uh, significant percentage of skis on the wall that have ski touring bindings versus alpine bindings. There's Mm -hmm. still more alpine bindings, but um, if this is any indication, Sure. Uh, if, if this is a slice of reality here in Blister <laughs> HQ, I think that the backcountry market is looking pretty good. Yeah, I know. It looks like it's 20%. Yeah, I'm seeing a serious lack of Kessleys, though. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Oh, I hear Dude, those skis I are loud. Literally, <laughs> talked, literally, we dropped an episode 
of Gear 30 I, I saw. <laughs> today. I know. Where I was gushing. I texted you. You did. The, I was so thrilled. You made my day that that ZX-115 was on your feet and you loved it and you hit you you skied it on the perfect day too. Yeah. I I and I say in the Gear 30 episode, I was like, eh, I came in a little skeptical. <laughs> I was like, this is probably gonna be like too sharp on edge, like it's gonna feel like it kind of gets stuck, and it was just perfect. Yes. Thank you, John. It's a good skate. So it's a great skate. I yeah, I was and then I well. Yeah, conversation for a different time. <laughs> I also then got on the 108 and I also got on the 100. So, yeah, I was rounding out. I'm, I'm, I'm rounding out my, my Kessley education here. But I got to say that that ZX-115 for me was, that was actually my favorite. And it was very conditions appropriate and, uh, and the rest. So, anyway, yeah. It so. makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you guys about the Olympics. You may have heard they just happened. Yes. I am curious. Did Chris, how much did you actually watch? Uh, I, watched a lot of, I watched a lot of highlights. Yeah. Um, I would get home from the mountain uh, in the afternoon and um, watch for an hour, an hour and a half as I was making dinner, doing things around the house. Um, certainly watched all the ski racing, alpine ski racing. I watched a lot of Nordic skiing, um, watched some hockey. Watched, I love ski jumping and biathlon. Um, so a lot of the things that involve skis. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I, so I've, as a sports announcer, I've called two Olympics for alpine skiing, Pyeongchang and Vancouver. They asked me to come and do Beijing. Uh, prior to COVID hitting, I said no. Uh, I didn't want to go spend three weeks in the, in the freezing cold north of Beijing and, and the, those mountains and uh, a place that really didn't have a lot of Olympic spirit or vibe that you might have found in a place like a Vancouver or a Lillehammer or a Alberville or a Cortina coming up in 2026. Um, so, and I'm, I made the right decision. Obviously, I didn't know about COVID, but regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, there was still so much great drama, so many great stories. I, I should say I also watched quite a bit of the freestyle skiing and snowboarding, including the pipe events. Of course. Um, in fact, one of the most mind-blowing things that I've ever seen was the men's ski pipe. Uh, I was like shocked and 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 scared, and yep. that was just gnarly. Yes, uh, no. I'm glad. I'm glad everybody's still walking in one piece. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to be honest, I thought they pulled it off pretty well. Yeah. So the U.S. came home with 25 medals, and 10 of those were free skiers and snowboarders. So you know, it's not usually that balance. That free skiing squad is fighting over its weight. They carry a lot of water in terms of making U.S. medals, as they should. We kind of define the sport here. But um, I was telling Alex, you know, like, or uh, I was telling Jonathan, you know, watching Alex Hall, Alex Farrar, David Wise, Nick Gepper, Chloe Kim, you know, all these just incredible athletes. One of the true highlights for me was tom wallish yeah like he so was good. incredible so good. he it's like it's my takeaway i can't i think he did more for skiing to benefit skiing than just about anybody could like it's it's incredible yeah, what he did i agree and, and what jason's referring to if those of you don't know is tom wallish uh, pro, pro skier was the color commentator uh for the freestyle events alongside todd harris for nbc sports yeah. and that's just a dynamic duo. Those guys have a great flow. Yep. Uh, Tom has fa- he's found his voice as an announcer. He knows all the tricks, and he, but he doesn't 
speak over the audience. He, he really tries to educate you yeah. as to what's going on. So I, I would agree with you 100%. I thought they did a fantastic job. And you know what? On, on the Alpine side, maybe not to the same degree, but I have to give props out to Ted Ligety. I think yeah, he also did a great job. had great analysis and color on what was happening on the tracks from uh, the tech events to the speed events. So did Lindsay Vaughn. She was amazing. I, I love that kind of insight, that professional athlete insight that, you know, it's, 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 it really adds a lot. It, yeah. It, because these are, these are authentic voices. Yeah. These are the professionals and it's a lot nicer to listen to them than it is someone who never did the sport. Hmm. Um, that could be the, the host, but when it comes to the analyst or the color commentator, it's so wonderful when it's someone who's, uh, you know, won an Olympic medal or a world cup or a X games medal. Yeah. And Tom Walsh did, you know, it's such a complicated technical task to explain what these guys are doing in the half pipe or in and real guys time. And girls, in real time. Yeah. Like it is, that is a skill that is really hard to wrap your brain around. You know, you can tell <laughs> by the time he, someone's in the air, Tom's like, this is going to be the 16. And I'm like, how the hell do you know that? Hmm. It's yeah. pretty impressive. So, Boy, I feel bad for Cody right now because he's going to be real bummed that he's not, he's just cut out of this conversation. <laughs> but one of the things when I, you know, had written down and I was like, Cody and I are going to talk about this when we do this episode that he's now not a part of. I was watching that men's ski half pipe and thinking this is utterly irresponsible. They should not be running this. And Tom was like, well, you know, and like that kept coming up. And Tom just kept saying like, well, they have to make that call. And once they make that call, they can't make, but that's, that's bullshit. Yeah, I like agree. if aliens started invading from outer space, I'm they pretty sure they wouldn't be like, keep going. It's time to drop in. So I'm like, everybody was getting hurt. Like, so I don't know, Chris, what are, maybe, maybe I'm in the minority on this, but I just was like, they needed to that was that was that was brutal to watch and the poor athletes are like i'm about to drop in and get crushed i don't think you're in the minority whatsoever i think anyone who knows anything about uh freestyle skiing was questioning why they were still running it now i don't know the fist rules with freestyle with pipe but i know them for alpine skiing and they will immediately postpone stop cancel a race if it's unsafe if the wind picks up and people are flying off jumps going into nets someone someone could die yeah they'll cancel the race 100 percent. so when they said i don't know if it was tom or todd that once they start the event they can't stop it i was uh surprised oh, really? and yeah. a little bit confused by that because i i don't believe that that's actually a rule but i don't know yeah and the saddest thing for me is that this was the third time pipe has been in the Olympics, ski pipe. And it's the second time that it's been just a shitty show. You know, the first debut in Russia, they had crushed the pipe. I don't know what they were doing. Whoever was cutting the pipe or salting the bottom of the pipe, whatever they were doing, they'd ruined it. It was giant troughs down the middle of the pipe. You know, and those athletes could not do, perform to their best. And it was terrible. And it was, you know, shouldn't shouldn't have happened. And this is, that happens again. (laughs) You know, it's so frustrating. Yeah. You're like, we need to highlight the incredible athlete athleticism of these unbelievable athletes. And the U S was there to take a sweep of that podium, a Colorado sweep almost. Mm -hmm. If we could, have. I love that kid Burke Irving, man, he's going to be the future. (laughs) And you know, like it was, 
it was all there for us to have, you know, one of the most amazing ski, you know, experiences that shows ever. So it's, it's interesting. I don't know if it's, uh, the Olympic committee, IOC, I don't know if it's the venue staff, the FIS who's right there, or perhaps even television networks that are influencing the bigger decision to just keep this thing going. But at some point with a couple of those wind gusts that you saw coming across the pipe, you're thinking to yourself, there is no way this is a fair event. There's no way this is equal for everybody, which it should be, right? Dude, like, Gus Kenworthy slam on that left it, side oh, was like, I, mm-hmm. I thought he was going to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fact that like, when he actually got up, I think my wife and I hugged it. each other. I can't believe it. I know. It He's like, like a piece of iron. And then he did another run. <laughs> no, he did another Are you kidding lap. Me? Yeah. I would <laughs> I would quit the sport right there. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, slammed the deck like that. No way would I do he that. He just, again. you know, went on put on some C B D cream and some E stim a little later on, some ice maybe, and he's feeling better. Well, switching topics, I think for me, the two biggest kind of standouts or highlights of the games really comes down to two athletes. And it is Eileen Gu and Michaela Schifrin for two very different reasons. And I mean, what Eileen did was remarkable with the amount of scrutiny and pressure on her. Wild. I can't imagine being 18 and being kind of at the center of geopolitical debates, let's say. And then Michaela, obviously... You know, also, I'm not sure how many other athletes at those games had that kind of spotlight on her. And obviously, it wasn't her games. And to have to respond in real time, repeatedly, and to just watch an elite, elite athlete have to answer, I would want no part of that. I don't know if you had thoughts on that or do you think there's um, sort of someone else or a different story, but I thought the games was Eileen and Michaela. I mean, I guess I can in some ways agree. I, I did pay more attention to the Alpine and snowboard events. There may have been big stories in other things like figure skating, for instance, the Russian gal, oh, yeah. young Russian gal. Terrible. You know, I, I didn't pay as much attention to that. That's but that maybe was, a story I just would like to like, yeah, yeah that was repress. also, you know, pretty awful. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing we have to remember is is these these superstar athletes like Eileen, like Michaela, they're human. And we hold them up on these pedestals that they're just like larger than life superstars, um, but they can make mistakes. And in Eileen's case, she's young. I don't think she has the necessarily – I mean, she's obviously very mature for her age. But when you're 18, just like when Michaela was 18, I saw a lot of that in Eileen. Um, you feel a little bit invincible hmm. and you're just having the time of your life. And she performed that way. Uh, now, Michaela, who has been invincible for so many years yeah. since she was 16, yeah. you know, with whatever, 72, 73 World Cup wins now. And um, this could have been the games where she took home four or five medals. Uh, but I will say prior to the Olympics, the World Cup season for her was not what people had expected. Mm-hmm. And Coming into Beijing, I did not see her coming away with maybe more than one or two medals. And when she made that first mistake in the giant slalom mm-hmm. and went out, um, I look. I again was sitting on the couch with my wife, and we looked at each other and we're like, Oof, "She's not going to recover from that one. Mm-hmm. That's that's going to get inside her head." 
And it did. And as you were saying, it turned into something so much bigger with people either calling her out or, you know, her having to answer for her performances, which is, which is too bad because she shouldn't have to. She should just be there. To- if I'd been there writing a story, I would have written a story about the three or four women who have endured a decade in her shadow. Yes. And they have somehow remained strong enough to still take advantage of the occasional bobble by the goat yes. and be like, I am there and ready. I'm like, and they dude, did. those girls, yeah. you get, don't you think they would have been just so beat down after 10 years of like, God, I will never beat her. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden she makes a mistake, you know, mm-hmm. never happens before. And they're like, I am, I've never been more ready in my life to fill those shoes. And, and it's boom. exactly what, what happened. Cool stories. Those girls were ready. And it happens in every sport. Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, whether it was Lara Goot or yeah. Sophia Goja or, Corinne Suter, mm-hmm. they were there ready to shine. And I'm so happy for all of those performances. Yeah. yeah. And Michaela, Michaela will come back yeah. and she'll yeah. be at another Olympics and she's probably going to be the, you know, greatest world cup winner of all time at some point. And so- those three women's perseverance and dedication to stay in the sport yeah. and always stand on a podium below those other two, but stay at it. You know, Sean White came up, he, there's a lot of people who came up in Sean White shadow and they're like, screw this. I'm out. I'm not going to sit here and just, yeah get third every day for the rest of my career. And I will just point out one uh, incredible example. Sofia Goja from Italy had an unbelievably terrible crash mm-hmm. leading up to the Olympics where it looked like she tore both her knees, maybe broke her leg, somehow got up and stood up, made it to the Olympics, and then won a medal and then just won another World Cup. And to me, that's like one of the stories of the season yeah. on the Women's World Cup circuit. It's absolutely incredible i'm a big fan <laughs> but uh yeah that was, so that was my favorite story is watching those three be like finally yeah. watch me shine one of the things and chris this had me thinking a little bit about the panel session we had at the blister summit the athletes and entrepreneurship you know i found myself thinking like i think and you can tell me if you guys disagree but Michaela's going to be just fine. And I and I don't actually mean from a performance point of view. You know, one of the things we were talking about in that panel session is how many different channels and avenues there are now and relatability. Whereas, say, before the days of social media, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed a lot was like, you better be on that podium or your relevance diminishes. But now to see... Michaela, I think often rather beautifully coming back to the world, talking about, hey, gang, I'm sorry, I didn't have it. You know, I'll be back. I'm so proud of these other women and these other competitors. Like, I think that we now have, or athletes now have more more avenues, more mediums where they continue to be in our lives. It's not merely like, okay, if you're not in the top three, you're kind of irrelevant. And maybe she's a good example of that, or I don't know, maybe it's, that's, maybe that isn't as new of a thing as it used to be. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think that athletes have a much greater platform now with social media. Uh, it can go both ways. It can be a positive for them to grow fans, followers, work with brands and sponsors and all of those things. But it, it can also backfire as we see oftentimes in professional, uh, stick and ball sports, um, 
uh, people saying the wrong things yeah. or whatever. You're kind of constantly under the microscope as soon yeah. as you put yourself in uh, on social media. Um, but I, I do think that uh, Michaela used it to her advantage uh, after the Olympics, at the end of the Olympics and afterwards to, you know, call to say thank you to her fans for supporting her to also um, congratulate her, her competitors, her teammates, yeah. um, show that they're a unit. I thought that was, uh, I thought that was really positive. Um, she so. did one thing in that after I, one of those falls, she posted this post and it was all these incredibly mean things mm. people had said to her online. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I saw that. She she cleared it up the next day. But my, my first response when I saw that is I'm like, there is a stadium of people chanting your name and behind you that love you and support you no matter how bad you did. And you, you're like, is, it, is there a rat in the sewer under this stadium that's squeaking? Just give them a mic. Like, don't give those, don't give those people any attention. There's the stupidest things that were ever said, probably by follower people who have like eight followers. But then the next day she came back and said, okay, the reason I did that largely is because I want you to see how awesome it is when I come back from this and, you know, people are trying to tear me down and, you know, you don't always have to listen to those people and I'm not going to listen to them and you're going to be amazed when I come back. I think so. She fixed that. But, you know, that first day I'm like, dude, don't give those people any attention. You're absolutely right. She, she used that to her advantage and it sent a strong message to young men and women everywhere that might have similar experiences on social media where they get some negative comments or some hate and it makes you feel really bad internally. And um, I, Jason, I agree with you that, you know, you got to grow a thick skin and kind of let those things bounce off you and not give those people a pedestal at all. But uh, we still hear it in our heads, don't we? Oh, totally. I, yeah. I don't just hear it in my head. I hear it in my feed sometimes too. Huh. I mean, no, but, but like yeah. you see it once. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's just funny how that, that pops up. Like that one ass who said something yep. so mean and you're like, why am I still thinking about yeah. that dude with eight whatever followers yeah. who called me a name? Like, why is that still in my head? Yeah, that's the psychology. Yeah. Is that human nature? Well, okay, but to explore that point, you say like, because I don't want it. Oh, it's psychology. Okay, but is it like if you're? Is it something that competitive people have in common, or is it just a naturally natural thing? Because it's like, yeah, you can get praise all day long for what you're doing. And that one comment that mm-hmm. comes in from a stranger, like literally you have no idea who these people are and it can set you off. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't actually understand that. Yeah, there's there's science behind it, right? It is, it is a psychology of uh, positive feedback, releasing endorphins and dopamine, which we love. These, these receptors that make us feel good. And then that negative thing um, has a much great, that limited or less even negative thing makes us feel way worse um, than the good things make us feel good. If that makes sense. I'm not explaining no, it, right, but it there, there is, you know, studies and articles and things about, about this, which, um, so we all scroll through our feeds looking for good things that make us feel good and don't want to see things that make us feel bad or comments that are like, you know, you're a jerk, you stink, whatever. Yeah. This isn't professional athletes. This is, this is everybody. teenage girls, you know, and social media and stuff, you know, I'm politicians. Yeah. Politicians. Exactly. I mean, if you were literally an elected official and you look at mm. the negative comments, you, I don't know, you'd go crazy. Yeah. I mean, what do you think Lauren Bobert thinks when <laughs> she reads all the reactions, everything she posts, you're like, 
Oh my God. No, look, she, at, she, look at everybody. She is a meme politician. <laughs> She's a, so she, she literally like, serves to be a meme. <laughs> That's funny. Colorado politics. The, the responses to everything she puts is like, if I read those, I would be having serious reconsiderations of my entire approach to life. If there were 5,000 people responding to each thing I said, telling me that I'm bad and horrible and wrong. Hmm. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Uh, maybe her supporters obviously don't post. So. <laughs> All right. I think we should probably start moving toward a conclusion here. And, you know, one of the things Cody and I do is we talk about what we're reading or watching or listening to recently. If you have any any recommendations or things that have come across your path that you that have kind of meant something to you. I'm happy to go first if if you guys want to buy yourself some time <laughs> here. I stumbled across a Ken Burns documentary of Muhammad Ali on PBS. And I need to, I'm glad we're doing this because it's a reminder. Like I watched a bit of it and then the summit happened and then I just <laughs> basically was awake for, I don't know, 200 hours straight. But um, I want to go back to this because uh, what I did see, I think, I believe it's in three episodes. Um, I might have that wrong. But man, I just, I'd say to anybody who isn't really familiar with kind of Muhammad Ali's story and journey, and maybe especially for younger people, go watch this. You will often hear many athletes like a Mike Tyson, like a Michael Jordan, etc., talk about Muhammad Ali was the greatest. And if you want to know why, I think this documentary just does a nice job of putting his life into context. Um, and so again, you know, if you're deeply familiar, whatever, but if you're not, um, highly recommend this documentary on of Muhammad Ali on PBS. That sounds uh, great. I will check it out. I, I, I love sports document documentaries. And, uh, of course, Cassius Clay, yeah. the greatest Muhammad Ali. Um, you know, he, not only was he an incredible athlete, but he came, uh, to prominence at a time where it was maybe even more significant. Yeah, I mean, exactly. In the sixties, you know, the, the United States was in social and political turmoil. And here's this, here's this strong African-American man boxer who's uh, going around the world and becoming almost like an, an ambassador for all things America. I, I don't know. I really, I really respected him as a young person. And, and um, uh, so I haven't seen the documentary, yeah. but I'd love to watch it. Yeah. So that's your, that's yours. That's mine. Is, so you have a book too, or uh, just going with no, the doc? I, I have not. Okay. I have, I have, um, sadly my reading has suffered, okay. uh, recently. And so that is, yeah, we're kind of just getting through the aftermath of the summit and I am plotting some days nice. off to try to get some reading time back in again. But, uh, yeah. So, um, I will lead with a couple things. Uh, first I'm reading a book right now called prisoners of geography. And I started, I actually got it for Christmas from my wife. And um, it's incredibly poignant at the moment because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis war. Um, but it's uh, a book about 10 maps that tell you everything you need to know about global politics. Super interesting. Um, I haven't finished it kind of halfway through, but it does talk about uh, the Balkans, the the Baltic states, Russia and and um in, in the Ukraine, 
Um, and it's, it's awesome. So I'm really enjoying that. I had it down here with me last week in Crest Butte mm-hmm. when I was here and have it with me again. And, uh, I highly recommend it just cause it seems like, you know, current events are sort of front of mind at the moment. Um, two TV shows, uh, one that my wife and I are watching is called the restaurant. We love foreign, uh, shows. So this is a Swedish show with mm-hmm. American or English subtitles, um, takes place right after world war II. historical, and uh, it's about this family that runs a restaurant in, in Stockholm. Um, and there's all sorts of uh, nefarious things going on. Um, people coming from the war back to live. Uh, it's excellent hmm. if you like that type of thing. Uh, and one show that I haven't watched that I really want to, it's a sci-fi show. It's called Raised by Wolves. And I, I know of just it, but I haven't... started hearing about this. Apparently, it's already on its second season. Yeah. But it's basically the end of the human race. And we've sent androids off to Kepler B-22, whatever planet, to try to save ourselves. Uh, and it's really a, a, sounds like a show about parenting. And as a parent, I'm kind of fascinated by that whole thing. I've somehow raised three kids and they're getting older. And so I want to learn more about what how I, how I did that right. How we did that right. So, yeah, uh, Raised huh. by Wolves. Yeah. There you go. All right. Well, watch it and then. Text me if okay. you're like, okay, you should get in on this. Oh, it's it's also directed by Ridley Scott. Oh, that helps. Oh, there you yeah. go. So solid. Okay. Nice. Jason, what do you have been... time to watch TV? I don't understand where people have the time to watch TV. I work too much. So <laughs> I don't have any shows, sadly. Um, that's all right. But I do read every night. Have and you just have you seen the, the show that's called um Dinner in a Movie? really good oh yeah that i would that i do watch oh okay good i've never heard of it yeah it's 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 a a series out there if i have if i have a few minutes i okay so you just went from i never watch tv (laughs) davenport names one show and you're like oh yeah that one i watch okay you need to know what that show is it's live fish concerts (laughs) oh (laughs) i know i watch that all the time, actually. It's usually always on. So just because just you and, said you don't have time yeah. doesn't mean you're not But it's actually... like playing in the background while I'm working. Okay, and good I'll be point. like, oh, there, gotcha. I'm going to go watch this. Like the Olympics. Yeah. Um, but I did just read a book by Dave Eggers, one of my favorite authors, mm. by uh, called The Every, um, which is a dystopic future scenario where Google, Amazon, yeah. and Facebook have merged into yep. The Every. And it is Is it like horrifying. the metaverse? Yes. No, it's a little bit of everything. Like, it's no, it's like the world. Terrifying. It's our world. It's, it's San not Francisco. Meta. They've taken over Treasure Island. They have their own campus, <clears throat> and there is not a single part of life that they are not intimately involved in. That is going on my list right now. It's <laughs> horrifying. It's one of the most disturbing books, and it'll really make you rethink the way you live in technology or interactions with technology. Um, do you have a favorite Dave Eggers book? Well, I mean, Heartbreaking Work, Staggering Genius, of course, his first one. Yeah. Um, I liked all I, – I read everyone, you okay. know, and I thought I, – I, I'm a big fan of him. I met him once and huh. he signed my Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius and he signed it with this – he took the – opened the pages right there and he drew this big scary man and he said, he's coming for you. I can't stop him. Sorry. Whoa. And I'm like, he's one of the coolest author signings I have, <laughs> I have in any of my books. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we're I think we're done here. Well, Jason, this is fun. Chris, yeah, I love this is the first time we've ever had a podcast crashed. Couldn't, you know, <laughs> couldn't be happier with who, who crashed it. So, uh, yeah, this was good. 
Um, appreciate you coming through again. And uh, I don't know. I, now I'm going to be sad if I'm not just seeing you several times a week. <laughs> well, be careful what you ask for because I'm only uh, 22 miles away as a crow flies. So <laughs> I did drive today, but I'll be on my bike or running over here next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Deal. Well, guys, thank you. Uh, this is fun. We'll hit the stop button for now, but um, let's keep the conversation going. Always. So, all right, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Jason and Chris for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast. We've got a great episode dropping there. And then Bikes and Big Ideas this Thursday. And then Friday, a Gear 30 episode, and I think I think Cody Townsend's going to be on that one. Cody is filming, and he's off in Canada at the moment. He and I are talking, and we're going to see if we can figure out a time to record that. So anyway, that's what's on tap on the Blister Podcast Network. And then there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on on our website including a bunch of flash reviews that we're going to be getting out, well, really over the next several weeks. So lots of stuff going on around here, but we will talk to all of you again tomorrow over on Off the Couch.